This podcast is hosted by RPP. The following episode contains coarse language, violent themes, sexual references, and the really creepy stuff. If you're underage, turn off your device. Normal people, Esther, don't just go straight to demonic infestation like we do. Because the government was also freaked out about babies. They might be dealing with a demonic possession. Meanwhile, as she's on top of him squeezing his throat, she's screaming, who sent him here? And they started to move towards her really fast. What are these? Australian aliens. Wow. So stupid. But you know what? There's something out there for everyone. Hmm. So, uh, moving on to business, I've got a feeling today's going to be a bit of a long episode, so strap yourself in, guys. The first thing I want to start with is uh, Louis and I watched the stupidest documentary this week. Mm-hmm. We were sitting on the sofa and we were just like kind of, you know, going through what should we watch, blah, 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 and we were on the Channel 7 app and there was this documentary, it was called something like, like after Chernobyl or Chernobyl-like revisited or something like that and it was about the animals that lived around the well that's what we thought (laughs) it just it was from 2007 yeah and it was on channel 7 so it was a little bit older but it like after a while so it's like following this wolf that's trying to find a mate it's following these wild boars giant wolf with three heads well they look pretty healthy but it was all about how the area had really come back to life and everything was beautiful again everything was working really well and they had these house cats that were living in this like abandoned cottage and it had these two bear brothers and one of the kittens of the mum cat, like, we had all this, oh, the wolf is coming, we have to hide in the wall, and then... Wait, are they real? Is it like a... Well... <laughs> are they, like, played by... I don't get it, is it a cartoon? Well, they were real animals and stuff. How do they have stuff? the narrative? Like, how do the cats know that the wolf is coming? Because they saw him come through the door. Right. Um, <laughs> but then we're watching fake. it. I know, it was so fakey fake. And then we're watching it and then it's got like all these like edited clips of like, oh, here comes the eagle. And it's got like the kitten in the grass like looking up into the sky. And then it's got like the eagle coming down in slow motion and the little kitten's like, ah. And then it's like the mother cat is down to two kittens. No. No. But then like. No. So the, mo- the the wolf moves no. into the house. He claims the house, so they have to leave. So they go and they find this boat and they're going to live on the boat. And I'm like, why it, is there so three kittens again? I thought one of those tabbies got eaten by the eagle. And Louis's like, oh, yeah, there are. Thank like, God the kitten survived. Well, <laughs> then Louis's like, I'm sure I just saw an arm come through that door to push that kitten. Stop it. <laughs> So then, like, halfway through, we're just like, this is literally the dumbest documentary we've ever seen. And I think it's because, do you remember about 10 years ago, people started sort of going as tourists to Chernobyl? Yeah. Or to Pripyat. Um, I think it was kind of like, I said to him, I think this was just funded by the Ukraine government just to get, like, tourists to come and see. Um, They they didn't, they don't need a a story about 
a cat and her kittens. They, I think it they works. Have Chernobyl. No, I think it works. Chernobyl is enough. Yeah, right. Um, and then the mother cat thought that the kittens were old enough to live on their own, so she left them and she found a farmhouse to live with some people. Okay, sure. Yeah. But I'm like, what yeah, happened to the sure. Tigers do. Oh, he found a mate. He found a girlfriend, and they lived in the cottage. Right. So all these animals are moving into homes. I just can't. <laughs> and boats. <laughs> it's like um that bird. What's that bird? What's that bird's veal of bird? The one with Sandra Bullock when they're on the boat and they're all blind. Oh, Bird Box. Bird Box. Yeah. It's kind of giving me that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Stupid, uh, stupid documentary. I will not be watching that. That's a that's a no for me. It, but it was funny. It's almost like spot the mistake drinking game. Yeah, but <laughs> we already have enough mistakes in our daily lives to then watch. It was very inoffensive, though, mm. which is what I need right now. I mean, you Correct. know, I I mean, I don't watch anything that's stressful at oh, this that's point because I, I don't need anything. That have you watched? Is it cake? No, yeah, it's shit. <laughs> but it's so. Freaking wholesome. It's no, like, it's not, it's, here's like six leather bags. Which one is cake? And I'm like, ah. It's though. The way the host, the host is a creep. Yeah, well. It's too sickly American and like when he pulls out a samurai sword to cut a taco. <laughs> oh, it's a taco. It's not a cake. It's like common. But dude. I like it because it's so simple and dumb. Good. Good. Thanks. Great. Uh, Good. Snowflake Mountain. Have you watched that? No. Fantastic. Okay. Easy viewing. Fantastic. It's like Survivor for crap people. Great. Me. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, it's like, you know how you were talking about the TikTokers, like, you yes. know, the, in the shopping centre, like, yeah. rate me out of 10. Yeah. People, shopping. imagine putting those people in the wilderness. Oh, I would rather pull my eyeballs out. It's so funny. Okay, good. And a couple of them can't handle it. Like, no, they have to go back to their parents' house and, like, go to bed with, like, a pizza. Great. Because that's all they're used to doing. I, I I believe it. No, totally. I've been rewatching um, because I just did a big Alice trip to Alice Springs, and I'm the desert bug is in me. So mm. the first thing I did when I came home was I watched Wolf Creek one, Wolf Creek two. Now I'm watching. Wolf That's Creek. a lot. It's my favorite movie. Holy but I'm watching Wolf shit. Creek, the TV show, which right? Stan and it's incredible. Oh. Highly recommend. Um, the screen, the cinematography is stunning. It's all filmed South Australia and Northern Territory. It is beautiful. That whole area that you drove through, stunning. I love it. I love it. The acting is great. John Jarrett, even though that you know, there's controversy around John Jarrett. Yeah, I've, look, I've met him, and he's that's come and gone though. And I'm pretty sure that that was he's found. Yeah, he was found not guilty, right? Yeah, yeah not guilty. But um, I love him. I love him, so I love yeah. the show. Yeah, I, I just have to watch it because he's so creepy in that so, movie and I just have to think, so good. better homes and gardens, better yeah. homes and gardens, like just That's remember it. him. He's on um, Hanging Rock and McLeod's Daughters. You just got to remember show. good John Jarrett. Mm, yeah. I met him and I asked him to strangle me. Is that – and he did it. He did. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Can I put that up? Cause I yeah, was I've got the photo on my phone. And he signed an autograph saying, I love your fucking guts. And I was like, yes, I love it. <laughs> I love him. I love him. When all the allegations came out, I was so upset. Yeah. 
I'm so upset. Yeah. Man, I still don't know what to think, but I'm a fan of the oh film. All right, guys. Facts from the freezer. Facts from the freezer. Boo, 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 boo. Facts from the freezer. Facts from the freezer. If we do. <laughs> Did you know the koala, its closest closest family member, have a guess? Oh, it's going to be something really random. Wombat. Oh, that's random. so funny because I was like, I was like, nose. What's got a nose like a koala? Wombat. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. That's a strange thing that you connected that you think of a nose first. Would you not? I mean, yeah. Boop. I- because <laughs> they've got a real boopable nose. I mean, when you think of monkeys being related to us, I don't really think of their nose. I think of thumbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I would have thought the same for a koala because they grip, whereas wombats mm. are kind of like Shetlands of the outback. They're just these little, they're like staffies. Now that you say it, though, I see it. I see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's cool. Um, my fact is kind of a little bit of a rant. It's a oh, rant from the freezer. Okay. Rant from the freezer. <laughs> so I've been listening to this book um, called um, Things No One Will Tell Fat Girls by Jess Baker. Yep. And she's one of those like body positive philosophers, I suppose you could say. And she said something in her book that kind of like – I don't know. I just kept thinking about it and I looked into it. So in 2011, there was a study that was carried out about body positivity. And uh, a doctor, Deborah McPhail, uh, an expert in health and obesity from Memorial University of Newfoundland, said young girls have indicated they are more afraid of getting fat Mm -hmm. than they are of cancer, nuclear war or losing their parents. I would completely believe that. Me too, but isn't it? Disturbing. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. I just like feel like every time someone says that they're on a shake diet or something, and and look, I I will put my hand up. I have done the shake diet, mm. and you know, if you want to lose weight, yes, it works. But is it sustainable? No. Hell no. It's unhealthy. Yeah. But also, like, it be. I just feel like being. Th- people think that being thin is the greatest. Thing that you can be. Mm. Like, mm. doesn't matter about work achievements or it doesn't matter about a successful marriage or it doesn't matter if you buy property. Like, you know, it, it, it's more like, hey, but are you thin? Totally. It's <laughs> the end goal, you know? Yeah, it just bothers me so much. And people forget that women are meant <clears throat> to have tummies and you're meant to have thighs and you're meant, you know, wear mm. as much as I promote women deciding not to have kids our bodies are made, are made for it for having kids right so we have these you know layers of fat in mm. areas that need fat yeah it sucks it sucks that we're brought up to want to be skinny I mean I remember I was a skinny kid I was I was very underweight because I had a lot of ear and throat issues so I was I was a stick but then when I hit puberty, I gained a whole heap of weight. I had double D boobs in grade six, which I 
hate it. Wow, that's a lot I for a kid. Dis- I hate it. I wore big, heavy jumpers through summer. I hated my body. But I remember going into the chemist as a little kid looking at, like, the diet bars and stuff and yeah. asking the people at the pharmacy, um, how can I lose weight? And she, thank God this lady actually told me off and said, I will not allow you to buy that. But... Mm. You know, it is, it's so common for girls, obviously, to – it's your weight. It, weight is important. It's mm. shocking. It's disgusting. Yeah. Stop it. We need to get over that, don't we? Get over it. So uh, we have got a really important case to talk about today. And do you, do you want to take it from here? Yeah, I'll take it from here. So this is actually um, a special show because it is my last show. Um, I have, well, we're obviously doing our live show next weekend, but I'm not sure when this recording will be released. It'll be released after we've done our live show. No. So this is episode 12 of season five. So this will be out this Thursday oh, sick. and then that's three days before our live show. Amazing. Well, we'll see you guys there. Yeah. be great. Mm. But, um, this is my last studio recording. I'm withdrawing from this magical podcast that I've been a family member of for three years now and I'll be back for I'll be back for guest spots but I've just got too much um, studies and stuff on my plate right now and I need to take a break but what I am doing is I'm um, covering the Australian magazine article on my grandmother's death so this will be the first official released podcast covering Maria Yan. Um, There's one that's waiting to be released by Australian True Crime Podcast hosted by Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. That has been delayed a bit because we've had a little um, bit of an issue with some TV stations that were meant to be doing a TV show on the case, but they've had to there's been a few delays and I can't I can't really go into that. There's a few things I can't legally go into because this case is ongoing. They've reopened it, which is super exciting for my family. Um, it's been, you know, it, the murder happened in 2003. So it's been years and years. It disappeared. Um, we've brought it back. But I'm going to tell you the story of what David Murray, who is an amazing journalist, what he wrote for our story and how that took off, which is awesome. So back in 2000 and, geez, 17 maybe? Whenever the Teacher's Pet podcast came out. Mm, it would have been around, yeah, 2017, 18, yeah, something like that. somewhere around there. So I, when I was a housekeeper at Jackalope Hotel in Mornington, as we all do because we love podcasts, I was listening to my pod, listening to the teacher's pet, and it. Remember when that was out? It was huge. It was everywhere. It was Everyone massive. was talking about it. Just the research. It was just. It's a gorgeous podcast. They did so well, mm. um, and the Australian funded that. They produced it. So I con- for our international listeners, that's the Australian newspaper. Yeah, it's like our big national newspaper. It's it's huge. So I, um, while I was cleaning a toilet, I'm like, screw this. I'm going to email the dude that did this podcast. So I wrote him a big letter and um, he's like, I, I can't really do anything with that at the moment because I'm busy with the Teacher's Pet podcast, but I'll pass you on to David Murray, who works for The Australian. And so I started writing to David 
quite regularly. I called him on the phone. We chatted. I sent him articles because if you Google Maria Yan, it's all over the internet. Um, And then I hadn't told my dad this, I don't think, at this stage. I just kind of kept it between me and David. Mm. Um, But then eventually I told dad and dad was quite apprehensive and of course, your dad, my dad is the son of Maria. Yeah, he's the son of Maria. So Maria is my grandmother, um, and I'll get into that in a moment. But um, eventually, it, this article that I'm about to read took years to write, and it kind of disappeared for a while because, as you'll hear in the story of the actual case, it's super complicated. It's really hard to understand. I actually learnt more from reading this article than I did being a member of this family. Wow. It taught me a lot. There's details in this I didn't even know. Um, But what really triggered this article, which is so special, is Tim Day, who is the head of homicide now for Victoria Police... He's um, the uh, inspector. Um, uh, he was... Like a chief commissioner or yeah, something? Yeah, he's head of homicide now. He, When he first started um, his career as a police officer, he worked on my nonna's case. And then it wasn't until last year he was being interviewed by Neil Mitchell on a radio station where he actually brought up my nonna's case and then after that after he said that on air David was like shit like it's time to finish this article Mm -hmm. and then from that it's just it's been fully it's sparked a whole new level of this investigation which is really exciting um but this case has made me want to pursue criminology um and it's, it's heavy. It's heavy, but we're getting somewhere and I just wanted it to be the last thing I speak about on this show before I leave. Mm. So. And, guys, um, you can access this on the Australian website, the Instagram. Um, I You can contact me and I'll show you. I'll tell you a funny story before I get started because it's quite a heavy case. But we were on, we're on the cover of the magazine, right? And it's a beautiful photo and my dad's looking really sad and I'm looking pissed. Because I didn't yeah. know how to pose, my God. I think it's perfect. Yeah. I mean, I'm so used to doing photo like uh, photo shoots in burlesque or drag and this was for a true crime magazine. So I look a bit gangster. We look like <laughs> a mafia family. Yeah, a little bit. But... <laughs> I got there early. I got to Dad's house in Mount Martha really early and, like, I chose his outfit. I put my makeup on. And um, the photographer, he came all the way from the city. He went through – oh, Geelong, sorry. And he came via ferry and then he drove to Mount Martha. And my mum had cooked scones for us all. And so Dad and I were, you know, prepping the house and deciding where we're going to do this shoot, blah, blah, blah. And he comes along and I've got all these beautiful scones on the bench and I had bought a a new fresh jug of cream and jam and he sat down and we're having tea with him before we do the shoot. And I'm like, oh, would you like a scone? I think his name is Julian. It says uh, photography by Julian Kingmar. There you go, Julian. Lovely man. And um, he's like, yeah, I'd love love a uh, scone. So I grabbed 
the cream out and I put it on the scones and um, I took one bite and I'm like, this tastes fucked. <laughs> he, he ate the whole scone and then dad took a bite. He's like, eh, these taste shocking. And I look and so I'd had my brand new jug of cream. Dad had left cream in the fridge that was months overdue. Oh, this, no. This photographer had eaten two scones with claggy off cream. No. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, we've poisoned the photographer. He's going to be vomiting and he's going to have to catch a ferry back with gastro. Bless. I, I was, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, you've come to, you know, come take photos for this family murder. Yet we're probably going to kill you with food poison. It was shocking. It was so <laughs> embarrassing. It was <laughs> horrendous. I was so angry at dad. I'm like, why would you keep? Cream. It's almost got hair in it. Like it's living. It's, it's a. It's yeah, an it's ecosystem. Moving. It was shocking. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. But yeah, it's taught me a lesson about dairy. But um, poor Julian. Mm. <laughs> Apologies, Julian. Yeah. So let's get started, guys. Now, um, <coughs> how Excuse do me. I do this? So Maria Yan is my grandmother. Jeff Yan is Maria's son, and he is my dad. So then there's Pauline Yan, who is Maria's daughter. She is my auntie. And then there's uh, Rhonda Shiguri, who is formerly Rhonda Yan, who is um, my other auntie and um, Maria's eldest daughter. Um, I call her Nonna because that's the Italian word for grandma. She's mm-hmm. my grandma. Just to kind of build the family tree in case I swap from Nonna to Maria. Okay. Yep. Uh, here we go. So this is by David Murray and um, this was published last year in, in September. May 24th, 2021. Victoria Police Homicide Squad officer in charge Tim Day is in the studio with Melbourne radio host Neil Mitchell talking about a new online cold case hub. The the veteran cop tells Mitchell advances in forensic science and technology can only do so much. He wants the public to go onto the police website to help solve selected murders from years and in some cases decades ago. It's about fellow human beings providing us with the information that we need. People can't hold secrets their entire lives, he says. Eleven minutes into the interview, Mitchell is about to wrap things up when he puts Day on the spot with one more question. Is there one in all the ones you've dealt with that you'd particularly like to see solved? There's one particular one from 2003 that I'd like to solve from Juliet Crescent in Hillsville, Day replies. That's one that will always come back to me, that, yeah, you'd like to think before you've done everything that you can, but, yeah, before I retire, that's one I'd like to solve. Mitchell is paying attention. Who is the victim? Day. That's Maria Yan. Mitchell. Why? Why does that one stay with you? Day. I think that it's solvable. Mm. So when that hit, I was walking home from work and I had my my aunt messaging me, check, check this, check this link, check this link. I had dad calling me. I had no idea. I don't listen to um, Neil Mitchell. Okay. And when I listen to it and I can give it to you guys to play, it's pretty, it's, pretty amazing like I had a cry um it was special it was really special it was really lovely 
Um, the, I, I have to give Neil Mitchell um, points for that because um, he interviewed my sister, Dr. Jess, once. Mm. When the, um, do you remember the the when the the lettuces were contaminated about yeah. five years ago? Yeah. Well, she was one of the head sort of people sorting that out. Damn. And he gave her such a hard time. Really? Yeah, and he refused to call her Dr. <gasps> um, Dr. Lai. He called her, kept calling her Jessica. Oh, my God, I'm so... He was such a wanker I'm to so her. I'm so sorry. But, yeah, this is this kind of um, brings him back into my that sphere sucks. of respect. That sucks. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah, yeah. that sucks. It was an unscripted response. Five cases had been chosen for the hub's launch and the haunting murder of 69-year-old Maria Yan wasn't one of them. Maria, an adored mother, nonna, widow, friend and op shop volunteer, had been bludgeoned to death in a chair in her home. Her killer had loomed over her, probably from behind, and struck her 22 times in the head. The unidentified murder weapon was something solid and heavy, like an iron bar or the blunt end of an axe. She had no defence wounds, meaning whoever did this struck her with no or little warning and made sure to finish the job. 22 times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and her, it was interesting because it was such good aim that there were hardly any marks, apparently, hardly any marks on her shoulders. On other sides of her. Yeah. It was just strictly to the head. Yeah. Day had been the lead investigator. Most of Mitchell's listeners probably didn't give another thought to the brief exchange, but to a select group, it had profound meaning. At the end of a busy day's work, Maria's son, Jeff, looked at his mobile phone and found the screen filled with missed calls and messages from family and friends. Jeff phoned his sister, Rhonda, who had already heard the segment, and they both wept over the phone. Maria's sister, Deanne Green, 89, had heard it too and shared it on Facebook. There was an immediate sense it was the light they had been waiting for in a 13-year tunnel stretching all the way back to 2008 when a jury found Maria's son-in-law, Joseph James Chucks Unumadu, the husband of daughter Pauline, not guilty of her murder. Jeff Yan, a landscape gardener and keen surfer who lives at Mount Martha on Victoria's Mornington Peninsula, still gets goosebumps thinking about days off the cut comments. There are more than 200 cold cases on the Homicide Squad's books. What had made Maria pop into the detective's mind? Jeff, 63, says it felt like divine intervention. I was in shock. It was so confronting. Mum's case to us was almost over and done with. But all of a sudden there was a pulse, he says. There was a pulse for the first time in all this time. When I listened to it over and over again. Then I listened to it over and over again. Words when one thing... But without the family knowing at the time, Day had already <laughs> Day had already quietly ordered a review of Maria's murder by a cold case investigator, Detective Senior Constable Caitlin Jones. Speaking to the Weekend Australian magazine in early August, the two detectives confirm it is the first time the case has been reviewed since the 2008 acquittal. She looks so young. She's yeah, a she senior is. constable. She yeah. must have um, done really Worked well. Worked hard. Yeah. yeah. Day explains that while all unsolved cases are important, he mentioned Maria because it was one that I did early in my career as a homicide squad detective and it's one that got away from us. 
Police looked at about 20 persons of interest through the course of their original investigation and he wants to make it clear the new inquiry will be an objective look at the facts. Jones is free to go down the path she sees fit. The key to this is the fresh set of eyes, Day says. So this is why I can't really go into detail about the main suspect, but like I said, I'm just going off what um, David Murray has written. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, seems the safest way mm. to go about it for for now, and yeah. then maybe in the future if we have once it's more. solved, once it's solved, I'll come back on the podcast and I'll do an interview from inside the prison, interviewing the murderer. I'd love to do that. Hundred percent. I've pictured it in my head for years. Maria Bambina Alice Tancredi was born on November twenty first, nineteen thirty three, in a remote farmhouse in Wangrabel, Victoria, with the Genoa River raging in flood. Her migrant Italian father arrived hours later to find his exhausted Australian-born wife, a weak newborn and two distressed little girls, Maria's sisters Deanne and two, then two, and Carmela, one. Jeez, that's a, that's a, a lot of kids under two. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. I mean, back in the day, they bred a lot, didn't they? Right. Maria arrived with the karma of drama, a characteristic she still has today. Deanne recalled in a speech at Maria's 60th, captured on camera. The parents had three more children and raised them in Preston in Melbourne's north. At 17, Maria married Ronald Yan and they had three children, Rhonda, Jeff and Pauline. Ronald became a teacher and then the happily married couple retired to a hobby farm in Akron, 120 kilometres northeast of Melbourne. In home videos, Maria showed off a pantry brimming with bottles of preserved fruits and jams and a room lined with her dazzling collection of heels. Aren't they gorgeous? (laughs) They're my disco shoes, she says in a recording holding up a sparkling red pair. I remember Nonna's outfits and they are like so wog, so gorgeous. (laughs) Sparkles. Sparkles, sequins, Mm. um, very calf day night. Right. I love it. Their shoes were just incredible. They were gold. They had big crystals on them. They were just beautiful. She always painted her nails red. She was real glitzy Italian, short, tiny little woman. Yeah. Stunk of mothballs. I lo- <laughs> to this day, I love the smell of mothballs because yeah. it's just like smelling nonna. But her shoes were just incredible. The moths are not getting to those sparkles. No, God, they never did. I think they'd still be petrified to this day. <laughs> no bug will touch them. <laughs> in 1984, the Yans were rocked by Ron's death in his 50s from a heart attack. So young. Yeah, I never met him. Apparently he was a legend. Apparently him and I look very similar. Yeah, we're both goofy. (laughs) Maria stayed on the farm when nine years later, family and friends gathered from all corners for a 60th. There were tents, a cake with white icing, coal-roasted lamb and towels of plates. Her sister Deanne says in her speech that Maria's anthem in her youth was Vera Lynn's It's a Lovely Day Tomorrow with its lyrics. Just forget your troubles and learn to say tomorrow is a lovely day. It was a philosophy Maria still lived by, Deanne said. Four years later, in 1997, Maria said goodbye to the farm where where her beloved husband's ashes were buried and moved to a bluestone cottage she had bought in Juliet Crescent, Hillsville in the Yarra Valley. 
It was a peaceful, secluded location set on 0.65 hectares of land. Deanne was just 15 minutes away in Yarra Glen and sister Carmela would move to Hillsville three years later. That's nice. It'll be close by. Hillsville still to me is like the most beautiful, beautiful I town. love Hillsville. It's just gorgeous. Mm. And Nonna's house was so beautiful. Like it was set in the mountain, um, little dirt road. It was like a fairy tale. There were She had specifically built or like had the landscape – the garden landscape to bring in native wildlife. Oh. So there's like this beautiful green lawn and then all around the house is little waterfalls with native plants and trees and you'd wake up hearing um, those beautiful bellbirds, pheasants. It was just – it was so gorgeous. In summer it was magical. Mm. Maria found a new purpose, taking over the East End Op Shop and turning it into a thriving venture – her time was all donated, the thrift store raising money for the local living and learning centre. She quickly made firm friends with staff and customers who became witnesses to the traumatic final months of her life. The last time Maria had most of her family together was Christmas 2002, her house filled with mouthwatering aromas from the kitchen. Everyone was taking their seats for lunch when they noticed six extra plates, each piled with turkey and ham and all the trimmings. Maria said the surplus meals were for the boys, a group of men from a halfway house she knew through the op shop. Ordering Rhonda's husband, Maurice Shiguri, to load the plates into his car, Maria hopped into the front passenger seat. They drove off to deliver the feast while the rest of the family sat at the table, stomachs growling. That was Maria, thoughtful, generous to a fault, and for all those things and more, dearly loved. So nice. She was to best. think of people like you know that maybe didn't have access to Christmas she, dinner. She let people into her house, and this is this was one of the issues with the investigation. She mm-hmm. let she just let randoms come in. You know, she she had friends. She was with homeless people. Yeah, um, anyone who was in need of help, she'd give them money, clothes. It was wild. Mm. Um, she dropped out of high school in, like, I think it was year 10, so she didn't really have much of an education either. So she, all she knew to do was just to help people. Right. She flew people overseas. Um, she, there were, she had people, like, um, exchange students from all over the world stay with her and she'd fly them, you know, overseas. She, was, she just gave. Did she ever make it back to Italy? I think so, yeah, she would have. Yeah. Yeah. At 8.15am on Tuesday, September 30th, 2003, gardener Matthew Clifton drove up Maria Yan's steep driveway and parked. Clifton had been transforming the big yard into a sanctuary for birds and, as usual on his arrival, he tapped on the kitchen window. Maria, living alone, would typically shout a greeting. This time, there was no reply. Clifton busied himself with odd jobs around the pool until he needed Maria's call on which roses to plant to finish a garden bed. Returning to the house, he found the front security door slightly ajar and behind it, the wooden door unlocked. And it's funny, I remember her door, the door that he's talking about. It was the most beautiful door and it's... I have nightmares of this house every single week. Every Mm. week. Specifically this front door. Right. So it... It had the rose. It had stained glass with rosellas on it, 
and it was and the light would come through and it was the most beautiful right beautiful door i i wish a dream of mine is to move into this house one day mm. i'd love to buy it off the current owner he took off his boots and walked inside calling maria's name oddly her purse was lying open on the kitchen floor looking around he saw the television was on then spotted maria in a chair from a distance she looked asleep when he stepped closer Stopping just a foot away, the horrific reality washed over him. He backed away in shock. Just as he got to the door, her friend, Janet Bridget, drove up the driveway. Someone has killed Maria, Clifton told her. I think we need help. Tim Day was on a call with his homicide squad crew and went to the house just after midday. He was then a detective senior constable and had been in the squad for three years. Aside from the blood on on and around the chair where Maria's body was found. There were splatters on the walls, the fireplace, a chest, dresser, ornaments and silverware. Some of the stains were from the impact of the blows, others from the repetitive swing of the unknown weapon. All pointed to Maria being killed in the chair. The purse on the floor was also stained with blood, having been rifled through or possibly staged to look that way after the murder. Mm, made it to look like a robbery. Totally. Um, so I'm wondering if when Matthew went in, I'm guessing if Maria was watching TV that evening, mm. the curtains were probably drawn and it was probably quite dark and that's why he couldn't really see the... It's probably his eyes were adjusting from the outside light mm. and that's why he couldn't really see exactly what was happening inside and when he thought she was just asleep and his eyes were just adjusting, mm. he probably... Th- then he figured out, oh, there's actually blood everywhere. Totally. And it was a, it's a dark house um, and she was watching TV. She was actually watching this Australian story on ABC mm. and, it, and she, I think she was killed at around 10 at night. Um, so the curtains probably were drawn. Um, and the house, the angle on the hill, depending on what time of day it is, it is quite dark. Mm, especially um, with the curtains still drawn. And I'm guessing living in Healesville where it gets very, very cold, she probably had quite heavy curtains too. She did. She had these beautiful – there's a photo of them. They're like velvet. I'm pretty mm. sure they were like big, thick velvet. It was pr- that out. sounds like it was really dark in the room and that's why mm. he couldn't exactly see what was going on when he first got in there. Totally, totally. Maria's daughter Rhonda had been the last to speak to her – in a half-hour phone call ending at 8.07pm on Monday, the night before. Rhonda had been at her home at Marcus Beach on Queensland's Sunshine Coast and could hear the television in the background on the other end of the line. Remove the violence and it was such an ordinary scene, a woman seated, seemingly watching television. Small clues hinted at a slightly different picture. Maria was in her club chair, the one she usually sat in to talk to visitors. When she watched TV, her habit was to use a different chair, a recliner. Another habit was to light a fire if she wanted someone to stay longer. Her fireplace was set but not lit. The TV volume was turned low, the way it would have been if she had a guest, and there were no signs of forced entry. Wearing a red top and sweater, black slacks, socks and slip-on shoes with a cardigan covering her knees, she was not yet dressed for bed. She had on a silver watch, golden jade earrings and fine gold necklace. A small gold crucifix was no match for the evil that engulfed her. So that tells me that she had someone in her house that she knew. 
100% she knew. Uh, meaning, uh, you know, she, she hadn't quite got... She was got dressed for bed. To, yeah. She still had her earrings on. She yep. still had her daytime shoes on. Yep. Um, and she was sitting in the seat where she sat to mm-hmm. chat to guests. Yep. Now I can't obviously speak about who I think it is, but I'm just letting you guys make up your own mind. Sure. Yep. Yep. In subsequent investigations, Day and his fellow investigators discovered the Yan family was in turmoil in the lead-up of the murder. Maria's daughter, Pauline, had separated from her husband, James Unamadu, but he was refusing to accept the marriage was over. Maria was in the thick of it, dealing with the fallout of his purported suicide attempts, stalking and threats. Maria had been James's greatest supporter. In his statement to police, he said... She was his number one ticket holder and that he always called her mum. But she had been backing her daughter's attempts to end the marriage and although he had always maintained his innocence, James soon became a person of interest in the murder and was subsequently charged. The later trial would be told that just over three weeks before she was killed, Maria had sworn an affidavit in support of Pauline's property settlement claims against James in the family court. In the document, Maria stated that although she was fond of James and had a loving relationship with him, his behaviour towards Pauline had been of significant concern and and there had been numerous incidents that had caused her daughter distress. James was fixated on a belief Pauline was having affairs all over the place, including with her former boss, she said in the affidavit. So, sounds like kind of a toxic controlling marriage. 100%. Extremely toxic. Maria made many other comments that were of interest to investigators and that were included in the police brief of evidence for an inquest into her death but were not used at the trial. There had been a burglary at Pauline's new apartment and along with antiques, furniture, personal documents and other valuable and sentimental items stolen, one piece of missing property stood out, a framed photograph of Pauline's former boss, lawyer Dominic Calabro, hidden in clothing in a drawer. The picture frame was allegedly left on a dresser table, dressing table with the photograph missing. Maria had, be, had said she did not believe James... James's denials of being involved and phoned him to confront him about the burglary. He subsequently drove to Hillsville, collected her, then handed her a phone. The person on the other end said he was Baba, a witch doctor in Nigeria, that he had received a photograph with, from James and had put a voodoo curse on Dominic, Maria claimed. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's wild. It's wild. This case is wild. It's got everything. Yeah. According to her sister Carmela's separate statement to police, Maria was terrified of what the witch doctor would do to her family or Dominic, having been told in the phone call that something was going to happen in seven days. A police summary prepared for the inquest says Maria was murdered seven weeks after the witch doctor call. Born in Ikiri, Nigeria... James migrated to Australia as a 19-year-old in 1976 and started a relationship with Pauline five years later. They married in 1990. Pauline would tell police that despite his claims to the contrary, James did believe in witch doctors, an intrinsic part of Nigerian culture. 
According to the inquest brief of evidence, Maria also claimed James had threatened to cut Dominic's throat from ear to ear. I have lost everything. I have got nothing to lose. I don't care if I end up in jail. Nobody is going to win out of this one. He allegedly told her, James was a manipulative and dishonest person who finds it very easy to lie and has done so in the past, she claimed. The coroner would also be told that a few months before their separation, James allegedly warned his wife, if you ever leave me, I'll find you and I'll kill you, but don't worry, I'll make it quick. It fell to Jeff Yan to formally identify his mother's body for police. On the night his mum was murdered, he had been to dinner with friends, then they returned home to watch a video with his girlfriend Sue and her daughter. Jeff told investigators that James and Pauline's turbulent relationship had divided the family and that on one occasion in April that year, Maria said she herself was manhandled by James. He said that as a result, he confronted him, resulting in James wielding a knife and Jeff a shovel. Police were called and Pauline sided with James at the time. In Jeff's eyes, the tense armed standoff was a key moment that should have featured in the trial, but didn't. That's bizarre, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yep. Another witness, Patsy Miller, told police she was browsing in the Hillsville op shop when she overheard Maria in a heated phone call. Maria hung up, cursing, and said her son-in-law had just threatened to kill her if she didn't stop interfering in his marriage, Miller said. After legal argument, this alleged threat to kill was excluded from James's trial too. Why? Girl, this is why this whole case is just horrendous. It seems pretty important to me. Very important. They left out a lot. The jury did hear from Lynn Chen, who I I love Lynn. Um, Lynn's partner, Frank, is is helping us so much. He's amazing. So they're almost like my godparents. Mm. They're the best. You'll hear Lynn. Uh, you'll hear Frank. Sorry, when the Australian True Crime podcast come out because they interview him. Oh, great! Yeah, the jury did hear from Lynn Chen, a family friend, uh, a Yan family friend who became a confidant of James. Chen said that in the weeks before Mer- Maria's murder, James was in a rage and said he was going to get his mother-in-law. Chen said that she told him not to do anything stupid but he said he had to protect himself. James denied ever threatening, intimidating or harming Maria and said he was home alone in Frankston the night she was murdered. At the trial, police said he did not use his phone from 5.52pm until 11.15pm, more than enough time to drive the 80 kilometres to Hillsville, kill Maria and return. Is that suggesting that he left his phone at home in case it would be tracked? Yeah, for like... Travelling. Yeah, I mean, see, it's tricky because I've also heard reports that his phone pinged off cell towers in the Hillsville area. So I'm going off this article because what we did is we gave David the entire court manuscript, Mm -hmm. thousands of pages. He had the whole thing and he went through the entire thing. Even if he did go to Hillsville with his phone, all he's saying is that he didn't take or receive yeah. Or making any calls. Between the exact text. time that the murder took place. Day estimates he had been to about 50 crime scenes, a number of them homicides, before Maria's murder. The first file he picked up at the squad was a cold case. 
the 1982 rape and murder of six-year-old Bonnie Clark in her home in Northcote, Melbourne. Day reviewed Bonnie's murder in, murder in 2001 with fellow homicide detective Ron Idles and solved it, identifying the killer as a former boarder at her home. When Maria was murdered, Idles was Day's crew leader and oversaw the investigation. So I actually, when I was, when I was, because um, I did, I did a bit of research on this before this article, mm. and I was on and off the phone to Ron Idles. And I, he spoke a lot to me about this case. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He's a funky guy. Yeah. Mr. Idols. I, um, I still think um, I saw him that day at um, Kringle Shopping Centre when I had a migraine and I was sat on the husband <laughs> chair outside Priceline <laughs> and I was, like, leaning back on the chair and I was like... And then, I swear to God, Ron Idols walked past, but he had, like, thongs on and shorts and, like, a t- it was a really hot day. And I was like... Run, run, and he looked at me like you spoke to him. No, in my head, kind of. He probably yelled out, <laughs> "Ron, yeah." <laughs> and he looked at me like, "Is this psycho?" No way. I swear it was him, but he was just dressed so casually. Probably was him. I've seen him in Frankston before. I, I saw him at a Thai restaurant. He was sat next to um, on the table next to us. That's so funny. Mm. Actually, I haven't met him, but I've spoken to him. The inquest into Marie's death was held in Melbourne in February 2006. Called to give evidence on the second and final day, Pauline was defensive of James and critical of detectives accusing them of failing to take statements from people who didn't fit their line of investigation. Her mother was never ever in fear of her own life with James, she said. Never did James ever bash or rape me. I want to make that clear today, she said. He did ridiculous things, taking my car keys, keeping me locked in the house, and he would hold me down or things like that, but never under any circumstances did he ever bash me. Idols, next in the witness box, rejected the allegations of tunnel vision. Jeff Yan had initially been considered a person of interest, along with up to 18 other people Maria had either assisted, had worked for, or that she had given money to, the detective said. All of the people nominated have been eliminated and have alibis. There is only one person in this inquiry who remained a suspect, and that's James Unamadu, he said. The same day, James's friend, Andrea King, told Day and Idols that about 10 days after the murder, he had confessed to her that he had killed Maria. The detectives arrested James just under a week later, before the coroner could deliver findings, and charged him with the murder of his mother-in-law. Do you happen to know anything about this Andrea King person? Yeah. So she was a blonde lady that looked very similar to my auntie. So how did he know Andrea? I don't know. Like, was she from Frankston too? I think so. Okay. I've never met Andrea. They were just friends in some capacity or acquaintances in some way. He had a lot of friends. He had a lot of friends. He was a... Popular guy. Yeah. Sociable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Idols would leave the homicide squad in 2014 with a 95% arrest rate and 99% conviction rate from 320 murders. Maria Yan is one of the rare exceptions. We're the 1% who just didn't get there, said Maria's daughter Rhonda, now 66. Some people never get a chance to bring anything to trial. They don't have a body. They don't have a suspect. They don't have anything. And their lives are in a limbo forever. Like the Membry family. Yep. But there's another very small minority of people who, 
are people like us who go the full hog, if you like, and at the end of it have nothing. It's like she's been just swept away. That's how we all felt and it came and it came to nothing. It is nothing and I just can't really let it all go. The trial of James Unamadu began on January 30th, 2008. It was held in the Supreme Court in Geelong due to the court renovations in Melbourne. Maria's family noted the glaring absence of media from the proceedings, while gangland killings were lavished with attention. Mm. Yeah, it was during the um, Underbelly trials. Exactly. So it was completely swept away. I mean, that year was heavy for Melbourne crime. Oh, it was huge. It was all about the... um, La Porchetta shootings totally. and yeah. yeah. While gangland killings were lavish with attention, her life seemed somehow diminished. As Jeff puts it, that white trash mafia got more coverage than our dear old mum, which I totally agree. Crown prosecutor Mark Dean told the jury the circumstantial evidence pointed to a planned killing carried out with a great deal of care and attention after James made two dry runs to the house in previous weeks. The killer was invited in, engaged Maria in conversation and attacked her suddenly and with great force. There was nothing to indicate a burglary. The person on the floor a deliberate red herring. At the time, the accused wife, Pauline, had moved out of the matrimonial home in Frankston and had started a new relationship, Dean said. The accused killed his mother-in-law because he believed she stood in the way of his attempts to reconcile with his wife, he said. During the two-week trial, the defence cast doubts on the alleged confession, suggesting it was an attempt to to collect a $100,000 police reward. James barely knew Andrea King, and it denied belief he would confess to her, said his counsel Mark Rochford. There's no forensic evidence, there's no fingerprints, there's no eyewitness. Rochford said, the jury returned with its verdict after deliberating for just five hours. Maria's family sat... not long at all, is it? Not long at all. Maria's family sat in the court in silence as it was delivered, Justice Betty King having made it clear that she would not tolerate outbursts of emotion in her court. This isn't a victory or defeat for anyone, the judge said. It ought not ever be... It ought not ever be the subject of either grief or triumph... To this day, James denies involvement in Maria's murder. For years, I was persecuted for a vile murder I did not commit, he says by text. I spent two years of my life in remand, while the police and members of family smeared my name. On Google, my name remains as a suspect. I am innocent innocent and police needed to look elsewhere but didn't. So uh, this suggests that his relationship with Andrea King was really diminished into just um, that they were passing acquaintances, really. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Barely the, knew Andrea King. Yeah. Does it actually say in that paragraph the not guilty verdict? It just said the jury returned its verdict. Well, he was found not guilty. I think it comes up later. Okay. Jeff, Rhonda and other family members have not been able to shake overwhelming disappointment in the trial and the denial of what they considered to be key facts from the jury. They say they felt they had been gagged, unable to give proper context to events only they had lived through. Marie's sister Deanne was so distraught she walked into her yard in 40 degree heat and dug a giant hole. I just wanted to die and bury myself, she says. 
I thought, I'll pour this dirt in on top of myself and I'll die. And I could have done it. I was just that low. The space is now a waterfall and memorial to Maria. Carmela died in February last year, having never seen justice for her sister. Pauline, 60, who remains in a committed relationship with her former boss, Calabro, is still critical of the police investigation and says there wasn't enough evidence to charge her former husband. Pauline wants police to investigate others, such as the many troubled men her kind-hearted mother helped out. Rhonda and Jeff say that for many years they could not talk to Pauline about the murder without it descending into bitter argument. In recent months, there have been a shift. We're talking about it for the first time and that's got to be a good thing, says Jeff. The one thing they all agree on is that Maria deserves better than being forgotten. Jeff also wants a resolution for the next generation, including his daughter, Esther, 27, now I'm 28, don't tell anyone, whose experiences of her family suffering has led her to study criminology at Deakin University. Mum represented love and human compassion, he says. What would I like? I'd like to think that I can look at the photo of mum on the wall and go, you're at rest now. Caitlin Jones, the new investigator, is starting from scratch. Any of the 20 persons of interest, including James, could be reconsidered and now and new leads will be looked at. Three years after James was acquitted, Victoria reformed its double jeopardy laws to allow a person to be charged twice with the same crime if new and compelling evidence emerges. Jones is sifting through boxes of evidence retrieved from the police archives. It is basically, in our eyes, an unsolved investigation, Jones says, so we put all the past behind us. We're not bound at all by what's happened in the past investigation, and in fact, we like to work freely from it. Pauline is elated but wary about the police review, while for Jeff and Rhonda, it has brought relief. Finally, there might be a chance of a resolution. Someone must have information and can solve the murder and just has to come forward. They keep waiting for the day. As Vera Lynn would say, tomorrow is a lovely day. Okay. Right. Have you spoken to Caitlin? Dad has. Dad talks to them quite often. Um, Speaks to Tim maybe once a week. Oh, really? Yeah. We've known Tim for years now. Yeah. So Tim's quite close to the family. Was he on the documentary about um, the Frankston serial killer? The one that was no, recent? He wasn't on that one, no. was he? I feel like I've heard his name from other cases. Tim Day's big. Right. Tim Day's big. Yeah. He's he's the next Ron Idols, really. I wonder if he was mentioned on Elizabeth's case, maybe. Potentially, but he's he's up there. Yeah. Um, so it's it's heavy and... Guys, we've got a Facebook page called Help Maria Yan Catch Her Murderer. Um, and on there you can find links to all the newspaper articles, updates on anything that's coming out publicity-wise, um, Crime Stoppers. We've already had a few people contact Crime Stoppers, which is awesome. Mm. Um I had a lady contact me saying, well, I saw a car go up the driveway on the night, blah, blah, blah. And that's cool. So people are saying, people are like talking about it. Mm. And that's the, that's the whole goal of hitting the media again is so just like the teacher's pet. It's because there's people out there who 
know stuff or, you know, have heard something, have spoken to someone. There's always someone out there who knows even the tiniest thing that could solve the entire case, Mm. you know. I feel like, I mean, just talking to you about some of the behind the scenes details that um, we can't include, I mean, there is so much intrigue on this case. I feel like it could be an underbelly series of its own. Oh, complete. Uh, what what case has, you know, mafia ties with witch doctor voodoo with... It, it, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. It really is. It's, I'm so it's, surprised that it's never been featured on anything like, you know, um, Australian crime investigation or anything well, like that. it just disappeared. I mean, I think with Dad's generation, they... We had newspaper interviews and articles and, you know, we had a lot of um, media interest from, like, the Hillsville Times and it was – it was even in the VC – like, high school VCE literature um, hmm. because of the double jeopardy law mm. um, and hearsay. It was, like, a great example for hearsay. Um, but after that, after the, you know, the 2008 trial, it kind of disappeared – but now that we've got podcasts and crime crime fanatics, you know, yeah. everyone these days is a what a, armchair detective. Detective. Yes. Yeah. So it'd be great to see some more podcasts covering this. Totally. A lovely girl from YouTube, she covered it. She's disappeared. No, not really? disappeared like she's disappeared, but right. she she shut down her um she shut down her YouTube channel. Bugger. Look, we're pushing for more coverage. We're, we're, we've been contacted by a few big names. So it's just the legal shit now. There's a lot of stuff we have to be careful with, obviously, because it's an ongoing investigation. Mm. Um, Maybe one day when there's more resolution, we can talk a little dive, bit more about... about the gritty. Exactly, yeah. because there's some stuff that you've told us that's crazy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's heavy. It's heavy. Um, And I just hope it gets solved in my auntie and dad's lifetime. lifetime. That's my my goal. Yeah. You know. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks, guys. If you know anything, spread the word. Contact Crime Stoppers. Um, Cold Case Hub is a real thing and it's awesome. Okay. Check it out. Mm. It's really great. Um. Bringing light to unsolved cases, even cold cases, it's great. It, it should be bigger. It should, you know, everyone's so obsessed with John Benet Ramsey and all these huge, huge stories. It's like there are so many local murders in your town. Yeah, that still that haven't been solved. Absolutely, they just disappear because they're not, you know, whatever. But. Mm. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, on that on a note, very sad note, on a very sad note, <laughs> and also your last recording with us. Yeah. Shall Shall we do the thing? What thing? The ending thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks time. for being the best co-host ever. Oh. We still got one episode, and it's going to be our live show. Yeah. All right. It's gonna be fun. So be until great. season six, you guys be creepy, but don't be a creep.
hate it. Mm. Even soap cutting? I love soap cutting. Mm. I love nails. So mm. really, I do love ASMR. It's just chewing and breathing. Yeah. And the TikTokers that are like... No, like, I cannot do... Get a job. Get a job. No, seriously, like they, they sit on TikTok live all day and they put like crinkly paper on their microphones. Hate and it. they superimpose like snow or rain in the background and they'll just be like... <laughs> People pay for it. People love it. Oh, they get millions of views. Yeah, they, they live off it. It's disgusting. It may, it pisses me off. Influencer is not a Influencers job. Influencers are not jobs. Barista. Like now that's a job. Yeah, by podcasters. <laughs> but we don't get paid. So. Yeah. so it's not a job. Can I just say, mm. 